Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and today we'll be finishing up our conversation about depression. Let me introduce our second set of panelists who will give their perspective on this condition. First up, we have Joe Muscolino, a soft tissue-oriented chiropractor who has been in the health and wellness field for decades. He has experience teaching massage therapists in the academic setting, and he currently has an impressive library of bodywork-centered videos that are a valuable resource for health and wellness practitioners. You can find a link to those videos on the How's the Pressure website. Our second guest is Irene Lyon, a nervous system expert who will be drawing on her experience in Feldenkrais and somatic experiencing to address this condition through the lens of trauma. Our third guest will be James Earls, who will be focusing on this condition from a movement perspective, specifically how we can include long chain movements and look at the body with a more holistic and whole body approach. Our fourth guest will be Robin Scher, who will help us look at the subject from the craniosacral point of view. And our fifth and final guest is Marjorie Brooke, who will be helping us understand how scar tissue plays a role in this condition. All of my guests today have had decades of experience in the field and are teachers and educators in their specific field of speciality. As usual, there are going to be a lot of different opinions and perspectives that will be shared over the course of this and upcoming episodes. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to put any one opinion over the other. I believe it is my job to bring experienced people and ask them good questions. We have a lot to get to, so I give you the second panel on depression. All right, now we're going to go ahead and turn to Joe Muscolino to bring a soft tissue-oriented chiropractic perspective to this conversation. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, Haley. Thank you very much for having me back here. It's my pleasure. All right, so we're talking about depression. Uh, what are some of the, the ways that you've encountered depression in, in your work? Well, so again, since I generally teach clinical orthopedic manual therapy, which is geared toward remedying specific musculoskeletal or neuromyofascial skeletal conditions, this is not really, you know, right in my wheelhouse, but certainly I've been in practice for a very long time and I've worked with patients who have depression and they don't only have depression, they have other conditions there. So I guess I would say first, from the point of view of if I know someone is depressed and they're in a depressive episode, generally, I don't mean today at two o'clock when they come in to see me, they're suddenly depressed, but they're generally in a, a week-long, month-long, or a period of time, then I know that they need more generally support, general support in their life because they're finding that the challenges of life are overcoming their ability to have a support system to meet it. Um, and or there can be certainly chemical changes and imbalances that are there. But either way, even if there are chemical imbalances that are underlying this, they then have life imposed on top of their blood chemistry. And for that, with those types of people, I generally look to not necessarily dig and work deep and cause painful areas. You know, sometimes you talk about, well, you know, suck it up and take deeper work and you'll be sore for a period of time. And there's limits to that, certainly. I don't want to sound too cavalier the way I say it. But generally with people who are feeling more life challenges, I, I generally try to um, bring down the, you know, if you were say when I work 
to do deeper work. I do a six or a seven or a zero to 10 pay scale. These people, I might bring it down to a five or a four or a three, unless they really say, hey, no, I'm fine over here. Please get rid of the pain in my elbow because that's adding to the limitations in my life and that's adding to what I can't do. And that's adding to me being out of work and me not being able to function and being out of work adds to you know, the challenges I feel and it adds to my depression. Because depression, you know, very often can be life circumstance oriented. And maybe by working by the way we work, we can change some of those life circumstances by making them healthier in other areas. But I've certainly found that patients of mine who were really strongly in depression that very often what they needed during the visit was more of a supportive session. Touch, not necessarily deep touch. If there is a conversation, and conversations should always be led by the client, not by a therapist, right? If the client asks something, you answer their question. If they don't ask a follow-up question, you shut up, right? You, you let them lead it. But if they ask a follow-up and they're looking for a conversation, they're looking for support. I mean, sometimes the only people who speak to them about things are manual therapists, right? They might not have that network in their life, etc. So I don't want to turn us into therapists. We have to be very careful about not exceeding our boundaries there. But we can be a human being who is there touching their body, giving them physical support and giving them psychological, emotional support just by being a human being there and discussing things with them. So I find very often those are two of the more important keys from me being there for the depression versus anything else that's in going on with their body where I can do manual therapy. So I hope that gives some perspective on this. All right. Thank you so much for giving your thoughts on this condition. Uh, if you listeners are interested in learning more about Joe's work and perspective, you can find him at learnmuscles.com. And if you go to the How's the Pressure, and if you go to How's the Pressure website, you'll find a link for a free month to his video subscription service, and you'll get access to over a thousand continuing education video lessons for manual therapists like you. So thank you so much, Joe. Thank you so much, Haley. My pleasure. All right. So now we're going to turn to Irene Lyon, who's a nervous system expert, and she's going to provide us some context for how trauma plays into this condition. Thanks for joining us, Irene. Hey there, Haley. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about depression. Sure. Um, so just as a caveat, you know, I come from a somatic trauma perspective. Um, I'm not trained as a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist. So this is purely from a body point of view. But what we're starting to see is that most mental illnesses are connected to the body physiology. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, um, who's a psychiatrist and an MD, has written about this in a book called The Body Keeps the Score. I highly recommend it if anybody wants to dive deeper. He says somewhere in that book, like we are seeing now that most classifications within the DSM, the diagnostic manual, like that labels all these things, which is another story in itself, that most of these representations have some kind of connection to trauma, early trauma, early adversity and really in a sense having a physiological representation that is helpless, hopeless, powerless, 
unsafe. So to use that as a springboard to talk about depression, I will talk about what we would call more biological just depression, physiological depression, very different than, um, you know, I just came out of myself teaching for three days. I was on a high, I was in this great space. And then the next day you kind of feel low and it's just because you've been in so much high energy and then, right. And it's not, I'm not experiencing clinical depression. It's just the lack of stimulus from a few days. So there's different, you know, we want to be really clean with how we use the term depression. So from a biological nervous system trauma point of view, again, um, and this might be a review for some of you, but there's these nervous systems, the autonomic nervous system, there's a sympathetic nervous system, which is kind of class, classically the fight flee. It's what gives us energy. It gives us juice to get up and go and do things. It could be to go exercise or me talk here with you, Haley. And then there's the parasympathetic nervous system, which is classically the slowing down nervous system. But it's also the social engagement nervous system, the parasympathetic, called the ventral vagal of the parasympathetic. This is where the vagus nerve comes into play. So as mammals, we are meant to have connection and, and be with others. We need that. Part of the parasympathetic that's less about social engagement is about keeping the system um, or being able to allow the system to slow down. And within that slowdown, we also have two branches, one of which is the slowdown that's rest digest, which we need, very healthy, digest our food at night, when we're resting, hanging out, watching a Netflix show, we wanna go into this, what's called low tone dorsal to repair our cells, to actually repair the lining of the gut, to immune, um, enhance our immune system function. So that's what we would call the low tone dorsal of the parasympathetic. There's another branch of the dorsal, which is high tone dorsal of the parasympathetic. And again, this is the vagus nerve. Vagus nerve comes out of the brainstem. So this is the dorsal aspect of the, of the vagus nerve coming out of the brain. So the vagus nerve is a cranial nerve. And so what happens is with depression, we see someone typically who has had early adversity, has had a life and an upbringing where there's been a lot of unsafety, a lot of strain, not a lot of unconditional acceptance, where the world becomes what we would call a dangerous place. And not necessarily because a war zone is happening and there's no food or shelter, that little being, so I'm thinking like little people, like you know, under the age of 10, your nervous system is forming when you're young and you need positive, healthy experiences. You need a parent or a caregiver that can allow you to express and not hold in the anger when it's there, but who can also contain it so that it's not so explosive that you hurt yourself and others, right? And so when we have these early upbringings that don't allow us to express, but don't also allow us to have healthy boundaries and containment, these two branches of our nervous systems, the sympathetic, which is the fight flee, and then the other one, which is this parasympathetic deep shutdown, they kind of are like vying for who's on first, like, you know, and so someone who will then have a preponderance to shut down 
And that's that protection. Like I'm not going to be this overachiever who, you know, creates a fortune 500 company. I'm going to be the person that stays really small and really quiet. Dare we say introverted, right? To the point where not only is it the psyche that's slowing down and getting small, the physiology becomes slowed, depressed, low blood pressure, low tone. You very rarely will see someone who would be diagnosed with depression who's exuberant and has energy to go work out. Like it's very low tone, um, muscle tone is very low. And when we think about, um, everybody's heard of the term PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. It was classified kind of when post-war Vietnam, all these soldiers were coming back with shell shock. And, you know, you hear these horror stories of them, you know, attacking their wives and their sleeps because of this unresolved trauma. But what you often don't realize is that they have deep, deep depression. And with that deep, deep depression, there's also a whole slew of symptoms that usually come with it, like um, digestive problems, sleep problems, pain chronic pain. This is where fibromyalgia fits in. And what's occurring in say that, that veteran is high, high unsafety in a situation. This is the same with a little kid, high, high unsafety, but then, but then this deep, deep break on the entire physiology, because they can't get this energy out the fight and the flee. And so if we go back to say, the child, because it all starts when we're little, this wiring, who couldn't have this nice regulated nervous system built into their system, there will be this tendency to, to live in this parasympathetic nervous system that is the high tone dorsal of the vagus nerve, which is just like putting the system into, into the first gear of a car and only living in that system. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh, I, I'm curious, you know, you say that the depression is this kind of the stagnation and you'll find that yeah. people exist in that, but there's also conditions like manic depression, which have this, yeah. this uh, alternating mm. back and forth. I'm wondering how that plays into it. Yeah. So if you think about um, this, I'll use kind of that example of you've got um, that fight flight. So that's the sympathetic right? So let's just say little Susie grew up in a situation where dad was violent, doesn't have to be physical, just angry and, you know, aggressive. And, you know, the term we had to walk on eggshells as kids, like it was just not safe to be boisterous. And if I did feel a little bit of anything that was sparky, I had to immediately bring it down, right? So that protective mechanism of staying quiet and small under it is this faucet of energy, anger, silliness, joy, creativity, but it had to be like squashed. It had to be depressed. And so the manic that I've seen and even bipolar that I've seen 
is nothing more than an individual cycling back and forth between their sympathetic store, their stored sympathetic survival energy. I'll say that again, stored sympathetic survival energy, that fight flee and the, the deep, deep break of the parasympathetic that's trying to keep that under. I have a good story. This is a, not my story. One of my mentors, Steve Terrell, he co-teaches with Kathy Kane. He works with a lot of kids who were adopted. And, you know, even in the best circumstance, adoption brings early trauma. It's like, why did the parents have to, you know, let their children go? What was going on? There was some kind of strain and stress going on. And so he has this perfect story of working with, I can't remember how old the kid was. He was might have maybe been five and he does touch work. So somatic touch work. And he does a lot of work with, we work with the kidneys and the adrenals because the adrenals pump out adrenaline and cortisol. So when we want to fight or be exuberant or say, screw you, dad, that's not nice, right? If we can't, we keep it in. And so part of his work with these little people, and he works with people who are 60 who were adopted, but there's still this survival stress stored inside. So he's working with this little kid and um, parents are in the room because the parents are always in the room when they're young. And, and the kid came out of freeze. He came out of the deep dorsal shutdown. And in the moment of him coming out of freeze, he literally feels this like spark of sympathetic survival stress he goes over to Steve, like his hand is right there and he bites Steve, like, like total animalistic, I want to kill you response. Of course, the parents are like, oh, oh my God, so sorry, so sorry. But he's like, this is good because he's coming out of his dorsal shutdown. And so what has to be understood with depression, and it's really important that clients know this, it is there because of physiological shutdown. We think it's all in the brain. It isn't just in the brain, it's in the physiology. And so one of the things practitioners need to understand is when they are helping their clients become more embodied and getting out of that deep, deep shutdown, you have to be ready. This is why he calls, Peter Levine calls his book, Waking the Tiger. You have to be ready for that tiger to come out because it is in there. And then a lot of people get freaked out, the clients, because usually there's deep shame attached to being exuberant. And so when they start to feel anger and strong feelings of rage, maybe even towards the, the practitioner, it's not the practitioner that they're pissed at, it's the story, it's the history of all the stuff, all the bad stuff that happened to me that I couldn't do anything about, right? Um, I don't know if that answers your question. It absolutely does. Thank you so much, Irene. Cool. You're welcome. So that was Irene Lyon. You can find out more about her and her work at her website, which is irenelyon.com. So now I'm going to bring in James Earls, who will give us his thoughts from the perspective of a massage therapist with a focus on combining movement and manual therapy. Welcome, James. Hi, Haley. Well, it's a pleasure to be back. Thank you very much for the invitation. All right. So let's talk about depression. Okay, um, depression is uh, it's probably something I dealt with a little bit more in my earlier career than I, than I do now. Um, as you mentioned in the previous um, interview that we did, I started 
kind of my therapeutic life as a as an aromatherapist in Belfast in the early nineties. Um, and it was probably that was that was a considerable portion of my client base would have been perhaps more in need of emotional support. And so for me, it, I know I, again there's um, school practice issues, but uh, for me it was how can I create a supportive environment for my client? So it was just that time to switch off, um, not not be not to not care, but to um, not be influenced, not to have the phone ringing or the kids screaming or the, the news playing. Um, early 90s in Belfast was quite a, an, an active period in terms of the troubles and the violence that was around. Um, so it was it was really, can I create a, a, a nurturing environment to, to let the, the clients just offload in whatever way? And I remember back then, it was, um, I did a, a lot of counseling, um, uh, practice and, and training so quite often my, my sessions were just I sat and had a chat with my client and we just talked for an hour um, and sometimes that was exactly what they needed and that, that was beneficial and and I, I always needed to contract that out it was obvious within the you know first five or ten minutes that I think my client needs to be heard more than they need to be worked on physically and so at some point I needed to create a an appropriate break and just you know can we can we reframe this this session this treatment you know what you're saying to me needs to be acknowledged and and heard and we have a we have a choice um you know i'm very happy to to listen and be a support for you um and talk this through for you and with you or you know initially the the intent with this this treatment was actually to to, to have a, a bodywork session of, of some form um which do you think would be more appropriate or more beneficial for you at this moment um and so it was, it was clearly contracted and you know some would choose one or the other it, it, it didn't matter um and to me directly but what i did feel that i needed much more was then also for me to have some support so having um some form of supervision so my ability uh, somewhere for for me to go to not to further kind of offload everything else but just to to help clarify um the emotions the the stories that were kind of coming through you know just to to ensure some of that and not to hold it all myself that's all of that that responsibility and um, that can and sometimes just be, be felt by the, the therapist. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, it can be a lot to, to hold. And certainly there were some, some terrible stories um, that, that I needed to um, just have some, some support for myself with. And, and that's, that certainly can be an issue with, with clients that are they're suffering from depression. Sometimes it can be it's almost contagious, it's just that, that sense of despair, struggle, just that that down feeling and it's it can be easy to take that on as a as the therapist it's easy to um just feel that the the, the power of that negativity kind of drawing you down and so you know i had to find find ways for myself both in terms of the kind of supervision or having somebody else to kind of support but also just ways of just finishing that treatment and finishing that session and saying, oh, and cleansing myself. I don't mean that's that's also I had to 
get rid of the other person, but just I needed to move into a, another space following that client um, in order to be free and, and, and available for the next one that would be coming in. Um, so maybe timetabling that, that extra five or 10 minutes um, just to you know, get some fresh air, get grounded to, you know, by then it was definitely common thing to run your hands on the cold water and um, over the wrists you know, some some form of ritual where you feel like that's okay that that session is what it is it's been a success and now I'm, it's it's happened and now i'm i'm ready for the next one to come in so in terms of the treatment of depression um again i've nothing nothing specific to to add other than it's it's imp it was important for me to make sure that i was i was as as fresh as possible, both for the client with the depression or the, whatever the, the trauma that they may have been suffering with, but also to be honest and available for the next client that was coming in, that I, I wasn't holding that that energy, that feeling, um, and sort of not holding that story, because sometimes you're just hearing horrible stories, and it, it can be difficult to get that out of your head and for your head to be be free for the next client and it's like to hear potentially another one yeah well I, I i from what i'm hearing it sounds like it can be very powerful to to be uh, that support system where so if someone does need to express how they're feeling um mm -hmm. and of course we have to be careful about our scope of practice in terms of you know wh what kind of conversation we can have uh, mm -hmm. but your emphasis on taking care of yourself as a practitioner so that you can be there for your clients and the next clients especially yeah. when it comes to the emotional side and perhaps having a ritual uh, seems like a very smart and proactive way of of addressing it yep it was it, it was essential and you know this is um it's not not depression but i, I just what just came to mind was um a story i was i had a practice in portadown which was a, a very um it was kind of a, it was a hotbed of of friction um in the kind of mid 90s and i had one client that came in and it was his last he was his last treatment and he was he started telling me about his the good old days um when he was in the the b specials which was a, almost a paramilitary it was kind of it was officially um, military police um, but it was it was considered kind of paramilitary by the it was predominantly Protestant uh, force and it was quite antagonistic against the the Catholic um, population and he was talking about the, the good old days when they, there was a, a curfew and they were on patrol and they heard uh, a couple that were walking back and that they knew from their accents and where they were and the fact that what the the um, the guy was saying, telling the, the girl that well, they had to get back home before the, the B specials would, would find them. And with, you know, with no sense of guilt, he said, and so, you know, this was back in the 1920s, this guy was around his 90s. And um, he said, with no, you know, no compunction, we, so we ran up, we grabbed him and we threw him off the bridge. And as a practitioner, I just have to nod and you know, there's nothing I can do with, with that story. But my next client, came in and I was asking her, it's like, okay, so you know, how are you doing? And she said, oh, I, I'm great. I had a fantastic weekend. Um, I said, what did you do? I, I went to Sligo, which was in the south of Ireland, or in the Republic of Ireland, had a wonderful weekend. Um, went on to Sligo, went out to the bar and 
we were singing rebel songs along with uh, Tommy Sands. Tommy Sands was the brother of Bobby Sands, who was a and he was a convicted IRA bomber. Um, I had to go from this extreme Protestant bias to the a very extreme Catholic bias almost immediately that that triggers um, in the in the setting a very emotional response in me. It's like that's because I have a, you know I was brought up in that culture, so I have my own stories to to deal with, and being that empty space, just that neutral space uh, for those clients was was difficult. And being flipped from one extreme to the to the other was a was an interesting challenge that I had to had to deal with, and I still and even telling the story nearly twenty years later, it still it still triggers an, an emotional response uh, in me. Well, thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you. So if you want to learn more about James and his work, you can find out at www.borntowalk.com. Now we're going to bring in Robin Scher, who's going to talk to us from the perspective of cranial sacral therapy. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Glad to be here, Haley. So tell me about working with people who are dealing with depression. Another really big garbage can of a diagnosis. Again, I ask, what brings, what brings you to me? If someone comes in and what's on their intake form is depression, I don't know what that means, and I don't want to think I know what that means because it's, it's a word that can convey a lot and stand in for a lot. So again, I ask about diagnosis and history. I ask about context. If, and I've had several clients come in saying they're working with depression, and I say, what does that mean for you? I need a little, can you give me a little more? And I'm thinking of a couple right now in my, in my head who've said, well, my father died two months ago. I'm not, in my head I go, well, that's grief. I don't want to say that, right? Because they're, de they're saying they're depressed and they are depressed. I also think depression in that instinct, in that instance, two months after a beloved parent dies is completely appropriate. It's situational. And it's different than someone with a chemical depression or diagnosis of bipolar disorder or other types of depression that could be diagnosed. So I, I want to know what's going on. Right? What I might be doing with those clients who I just described would be really sitting with you know, sensations in the body of from this particular situation. And once they are processed, and we could call them emotions or just sensations, once they're processed um, in this, these particular cases, and I think in more that I can think of, um, then the mood lifts and folks would no longer describe themselves as depressed. In folks with serious depression, depressive episodes and folks who have a real long-standing diagnosis of depression, I want to work as a team. I work in um, consultation with mental health professionals often. In fact, if someone has serious depression, I will not work with them without mental health support and without being able to have that communication. And that is not a punitive thing, that is a support thing so that I can really um, deliver the best therapy to this client and know that this client has extra support because craniosacral therapy is not mental health therapy, it's body therapy. Uh, I've worked with a number of people who are weaning off 
um, medications for depression, and that comes with a lot of physical sensations, like they would say side effects of, com of weaning off medication, um, and it also comes with a lot of mood stuff that can be addressed by doing some of the things that I like to do with people, tracking sensation, paying attention to what's working and what isn't. Um, in just throughout the just throughout the course of a session, so that folks begin to notice that I will change the quality of my touch, and their experience changes. And that's a useful way to work with this, I think. There's an interesting, interesting piece, um, or an interesting uh, way that depression can come about that's tailor-made for craniosacral therapy. When we learn about it, I. You know, early on in the curriculum, it's called the compression di depression triad. And it's uh, when there's idiopathic endogenous depression. Someone becomes depressed and there is no known cause. And on the whole full body evaluation, we find that the sacrum in L5, the occiput and C1, and the sphenobasilar junction, so deep in the head where the sphenoid and the occiput meet, all of them are compressed work to remove those compressions, depression lifts. Now, that's not, you know, I'm not seeing five of those folks a week, but when it shows up on my table, I can recognize it, and it, it is one of those things where if it's that, I think, you know, yippee, because I know what to do about that, and I have a really ton of confidence that's gonna help this person. And is there an explanation from the realm of craniosacral therapy that uh, describes why that compression creates the, a depressive condition? If there is, I don't know it. It's more constellation of uh, compressions, this particular symptomology. Hmm. Yeah. I think another, well, I can, one case study that I can come up with. I'm thinking of a few people who've, who've shown up with that compression, depression triad. I've had construction workers who've had bad falls and blows to the head. I've had uh, several women diagnosed with postpartum depression after an epidural. Now, this is not by any means every woman with postpartum depression has this triad, but I've seen it in enough cases that it's worth looking for. Um, but also a 13-year-old girl who had been diagnosed with depression at a just you know, ridiculously early, early age, all of her life, depressive, you know, symptoms. And I got to see her at age 13. This is what was going on with her. And in the course of, I kid you not, one session, we watched her and her, just her demeanor change and her color change. She had always been, you know, pale and drawn and wan and she pinked up. And, you know, it was a, it was a two session relationship. Yeah, so when those kinds of miracles occur, right, I really prick up my ears. I don't then say, I'm the gal who does the compression depression triad, right? But I think this is really something and it's always good to keep in the back of my mind. One more thing I'd like to add about folks who have serious depression diagnosis. You know, once again, this may be someone who I'll be working with long-term, right? Again, as part of a team. And I have to ask myself at every session, how much change can this system support? If I'm after curing this depression, I'm likely not going to do a whole lot of good. If I'm really present and asking, 
what, what change can this body make today? Then there's progress, and then I'm being of service. Thank you, Robin. Thanks. That was Robin Share, and you can learn more about her through her website at livinginthebody.net. And if you want to learn more about craniosacral therapy in general or its trainings, you can visit upledger.com. So now I'm going to bring in Marjorie Brooke, who will give us her thoughts as an expert in scar tissue. Welcome, Marjorie. Hi, Haley. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about depression. Ooh, there's an interesting topic that massage therapists aren't supposed to talk about. We're not supposed to deal with the emotional side, are we? We're just supposed, you know, that's one of the big problems that we have as uh, massage and physical therapists is that we're told that our work elicits emotional responses, but we are not supposed to deal with them. We're supposed to make the, uh, and we're supposed to refer out if anything and not say anything, but that's, you know, not necessarily something that we can always do. There are ways that do not endanger our scope of practice, but just that being said, in regard to depression, that comes up on multiple levels as a massage therapist. It can come up as the pain that they're finding that no one can solve, or they say it can be simply the fact that they're very depressed and it's manifesting physically in their body as pain. It could also be that because they're depressed, they're not moving. They're sitting on the couch or sleeping all day in bed, or they're sitting on the couch all day watching TV and basically compressing the whole body. So we have lack of movement and uh, constant compression, which is going to just that alone, we're going to go back to my usual rant of inflammation, which is going to cause adhesions and scar tissue. But um, it can affect people in many ways. And you don't realize that the depression can also be as a result of not just their life in general, but their attitude towards the accident that they had, their attitude towards uh, the loss of a loved one. I had one patient um, who she called me, I hadn't heard from her in, in over a year. And she called up and said she had a, a tongue and mouth disease. And I was like, okay, my brain kind of went to hoof and mouth. So I had to stop that right away. I had never heard of it. Uh, she'd been to five neurologists. They had her on all different types of drugs. And she was just, it, she was having all this pain in her mouth and her tongue. And I, I, I made an appointment with her. I, I spoke with a couple of my colleagues that are better equipped to deal with those kind of things and asked what it was. And in truth, it turned out to be fibromyalgia of the mouth. Um, that the, the, the nerve and the, the cranial nerve was being pinched and causing burning sensations in the tongue and the mouth. So I said, okay, when she came in to me and I said, I can deal with this, this I can do, I can release uh, the neck and I can release its jaw and talk to her. And as I'm talking to her, I said, so where have you been for this last year? And it turned out that she was the primary caregiver for her father-in-law and her mother. And both died within a month of each other. A few weeks after that, um, she started getting the pain and the burning. So the first thing I said to her, I said, you know, it's okay to feel guilty. You know, I mean, you don't need to feel guilty for being relieved. It's okay to feel relieved. And she immediately started crying on the table. And I just kept working because you get this a lot with uh, someone who's been a main caregiver is that they, of course, are depressed and they're sad that they lost their parent or the loved one they were caring for, but they're also relieved that they are now getting their life back, which makes them feel guilty and then makes them feel depressed and this whole cycle. So I just worked with her physically to relieve her symptoms. 
but I also recommended, I said, you know, there's all kinds of support groups. And I gave her a list of online and a local support group for uh, the dealing with the grief and the loss of a loved one. And within a couple of uh, visits, her pain was gone. Now, mind you, she went to five neurologists and was on drugs from every one of them. And on the flip side of that, that was actually realizing that they, that she had uh, that type of situation. I can give you kind of the other anecdote. When I was first learning how to do my stretching and I was practicing and inviting clients in for free stretching, I have a client who will call Mr. Misery. We all have one, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, how was the session? Like, do you feel better? Well, yeah, but you know, always is never going to be happy. Um, I offered to stretch him and he came in and uh, about half an hour, a little bit into the stretching, he kind of like interrupted me and said, can we do massage? And I thought, Ooh, I did something wrong. Um, but I said, sure. He came back for his next session and he said, you know, I was really depressed when I left here and my head is thinking, well, that's not an unusual thing for him. And he said, well, I knew I was in bad shape. I just didn't realize how bad a shape I was in. And I said, well, that's really a good thing. Don't you want to, now we know what's going on and we can work and with the stretching and get better. And he was like, no, I just want my massage. So now you have a depressed person who is not even into going into the therapy that you know is going to be best for him or you believe is going to be best. I don't want to say, you know, because that's, you know, know we're, that's crossing a scope line, but I believe that this therapy would really very much improve and help him. But he said, no. So I said, that's fine. I said, we did the massage and then he would come back for his regular appointment. And he had a lot of sciatica issues. And he said, uh, he didn't want scar tissue. He didn't want stretching or anything. And he just wanted his massage. And he kept saying, why does the scar, the sciatica keep coming back? I said, because um, you only want the massage, which is going to temporarily relieve your pain, but is not going to fix the problem. When you're ready to fix the problem, then we'll do the stretching. And it took about another four or five months. And then he finally came in and did the stretching and he was much better off for it. And I wouldn't say he was happy because I don't think that <laughs> was ever a possibility with him, but he felt physically better. So depression can show up in so many different ways, physically manifesting, uh, as in my client with the with the the burning mouth and tongue, the fibromyalgia of the mouth, or in the opposite with someone who's got like just sciatica and other problems, his whole body needed to do the stretching, needed to be reset, but he was so depressed, he didn't want to make any physical effort other than laying on the table, getting the massage, and then complaining to me about everything wrong in his life. Um, and so I allowed him to do that you no, know, for a while until he was ready to get the therapy that I thought would help him physically and hopefully emotionally. So in regard to scar tissue, um, since that's the main thing that you wanted me to speak about, it's going to develop an adhesions when people have depression solely for the fact that they stop moving and they, or they move slower and they sit more posturally, they have issues which is going to do your normal cycle of lack of circulation, inflammation, adhesions, and scar tissue. Your best bet to work with that is um, to let them talk through as you're working and guide them towards more mobilization, more stretching, more movement. Or it could just be they need someone to take care of them and a good, good massage might be that thing for them. But if you're finding more and more restrictions that aren't giving with the massage, it's more mobilization that they need. And hopefully we can then 
also redirect them to the help that they need. Also, remember one more thing before I forget. With depression, everybody and their mother is on some type of antidepressant. <laughs> and those antidepressants have side effects, which um, includes manifesting some cause restriction of the muscles and the tissues. Um, so a lot of times you really should have a good, your intake form should have a, a list of all drugs being taken. Um, and you should know the effects of your common drugs and what they are on the body. It goes, as, there's other meds out there that cause restrictions in the body as well. So a lot of the antidepressants are also causing body restrictions. You can't tell your patient that they can't take their, that that's doing it, but you can add, recommend that maybe they should look up side effects that maybe that has a part in this. You can't tell them that because you can't say, don't take something or guide them that way. You have to guide them to look for it themselves and then hopefully they'll make that decision as well. And one other, now let's talk a little bit more about how scars can physically trigger depression. Um, visible scars to many people are very, very, very upsetting and can cause depression. From the smallest scar that you think is like nothing can trigger such emotional um, reactions. You have, first off, for example, just how it's changed society, um, instead of doing the vertical C-section, they switched to the bikini cut, not because it was better for the baby, but because it was aesthetically more pleasing, okay? Um, also, people, the scar tissue can be reminders of the trauma that they went through. They could just be, for example, uh, tattoos, which are scars as well, but before you go in for radiation, they actually physically tattoo target marks on you. So you, let's say you were, you were lucky and you, you beat uh, cancer, everything's great. Uh, you're a year, maybe two years, five years out, you're getting out of the shower and you're drying yourself off and there in the mirror is what? The tattoo marks. That can, for some people that could be a badge of, yes, I made it. For a lot of people, it can send them all the way back to the whole situation that they went through. Another issue where scars can cause depression and PTSD is that they're hypersensitive. Um, you can put pressure on a scar, like they could have um, their pants line or their belt or their bag is constantly, or a bra, if we're talking about mastectomies or something like that, can constantly be putting pressure on a scar. And that irritation on that scar can send a message and a trigger into the brain and make people depressed and bring them back and don't know why they're irritated or upset. And then um, we also have the social um, issues with scars that can trigger depression in that who in the movie is always the bad guy, right? It's the person with the scars. I mean, who's the most evil bad guy? Freddy Krueger. And what is Freddy Krueger? He's covered in burns. So social, you know, um, the way we look at it socially, we will actually see somebody with a scar and we will like look away, walk away, avoid these people, cross through the ship. And that in and of itself can make people self-conscious and depressed because they can never get away from their situation that happened to them because they have visible scars. And then also physically, you can have a scar that's not visible as much visible, it's in your clothes, but you can move a certain way. You could pull, you know, go to reach for something and the pull attached to the scar tissue can again trigger a PTSD situation and send you into a depression downward spiral. Spiral. So scars really do have a large emotional link um, to people's uh, triggering depression and keeping people depressed and reminding them of situations that they can't quite get past because that scar is always with them, which is why it is so, so important 
to work with scars uh, as soon as it happens and keep it going and reduce them, their, their restrictions, their, their appearance, and the emotional connection to the situations that they've been in. All right. Thank you so much, Marjorie. You're welcome. If you want to learn more about Marjorie and her work, you can learn more at marjoriebrookseminars.com. All right, that does it for our guests on talking about depression. However, before I let you go, I wanted to just do a quick recap and kind of pull together some of the thoughts and ideas and, and, and present them in kind of a one place. So the first thing I want to talk about is how the research that has been done about massage therapy has much higher rates of positive results with anxiety and depression compared to the studies that focus on things like increased circulation, muscle soreness, or recovery from athletic injury. Now this is counterintuitive to most massage therapists and most massage clients because we logically assume that since the work is manual and physical, that the Bennett's will also primarily be physical. However, the data doesn't lie. And so one of the things that's good to remember is that our work is valuable on many levels. It could be physical as well as emotional and mental as well. Another thing is that I never knew that there were multiple types of depression. I actually just thought that it was one thing that affected a lot of people. It never really occurred to me until now that it could be uh, different variants with a similar root cause, but expressed differently. I also appreciated two things that Ruth Werner had to say. The first was that hopelessness is an easy word to say, but a hard word to understand. That really struck me because it's true. We can say these things. We can use language and say, oh, yes, this hopeless or it's really hard or it's difficult or it's a challenge. But it's a whole other thing to actually experience those terms. Now, I'm not saying we have to have empathy at every turn in the road, but I think it's useful to to be able to at least understand that just because we use words does not necessarily mean that we know what that means. And ha- having that awareness that we don't actually know what it means or we don't know what it might, we might not know what they're experiencing is a good way to stay away from hubris. It's a good way from staying staying away from assumptions that might trigger our clients. The other thing that Ruth Werner said is that depression has a strong effect on the perspective of time. So that when you're depressed, you actually feel like you have always felt like this and that you always will feel like this. That's very useful because when we're talking to our clients, oftentimes we may think that they're coming from the same, let's say, reality or the same perspective on time that we are. But if they're not, if their perspective of time is warped, it's really important for us to understand that. It's not necessarily up for us to fix that, but it's definitely important for us to understand that, especially when we're talking about conversing with them in terms of remembering certain things or or offering different things. anecdotes or even just you know trying to be compassionate to to understand that they may be perceiving time differently than we are it was also news to me and i'm really interested to understand more about why that the average depressive cycle is 18 months which means that even without any intervention some people can recover from their depression over time and another interesting layer onto that is that each successive time they have that depressive cycle, it's easier and easier to trigger, meaning it's it's 
more likely that you'll get depressed again each time, successive time that you get depressed. The other thing that I found interesting is that it turns out depression can have a significant effect on people's perception of pain. So when they're depressed, their perception of pain is higher, meaning they are more sensitive to it and they're more affected by it. One of the more poignant points that stuck out was how powerful it can be for us to simply be there and listen to our clients. Instead of trying to, quote unquote, get in there and fix it, we can simply be there for them. Also, when it comes to depression, talk therapy is out of our scope. So our best avenue for helping them in this mode is by being a good listener and by creating a safe and supportive, compassionate environment where our presence and our hands are there for them. I actually think this is one of the more sticky and controversial aspects of working with depression and with clients in general, is that there are therapists who are more conservative and choose not to engage on a verbal level when it comes to clients expressing their emotional state, whereas other therapists are far more liberal, liberal with their conversation and their verbal support. Now, I don't, I don't think that there is a one-size-fits-all solution here. To me, it's much more of a therapist-to-therapist, client-to-client, context-dependent choice. I do think it's wise to stay away from giving advice, especially medical advice around medication. But I think if a therapist does an honest self-assessment of how they can show up and best support their client, that they'll be able to navigate these waters, even though sometimes they are murky. To add another point in this vein is the importance of protecting ourselves as practitioners. So depression and down energy can have almost a contagious effect. And it's important for us to remember that our self-care is of the utmost importance. Some of us might need to have our own therapist to offload our own talk therapist, to offload you know stuff that our clients tell us and the, or that we're having trouble shedding or processing. All this is to say that our clients' relief should never come at our own expense. And of course, this of course wouldn't be a recap of a condition if I didn't recognize the positive effects of movement and exercise. Nothing has had more positive results with depression than exercise. In study after study, the results are consistent. Someone, getting someone to move safely on a regular basis is just like the best place to start with your clients. Oftentimes for us, that means learning how to help them move comfortably through our manual work. Now, of course, if you've been listening to all the other conditions, this remedy is of no surprise to you. Over and over, finding safe, consistent movement is the key. All right, well, that does it for my recap on depression. I hope you found it useful. I'll be in touch with you in two weeks. See you then. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. A big thank you to all of my experienced and esteemed panelists. I continue to be honored that they let me poke and prod their minds on these subjects. It wouldn't be possible without them. Please do rate us on iTunes or through whichever podcast app that you listen to us. And feel free to visit us on Facebook and suggest new topics for me to cover in future episodes. Until then, be well.